You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the start of season three with spine number 28, 2008's Martyrs and the New French Extremity, featuring riots, butchers, baby bumps, saws, home invasions, Nazis, Vincent Gallo, Vincent Cassell, cannibalism, car fucking, anal rape, bestiality, dismemberment, decapitations, basically the worst parts of the Bible, and Beatrice Dallet. Martin. Yes. What the fuck were we thinking doing this? edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, how depressed are you right now? Dude, this was a rough one. I mean, I'll be honest, this was... Well, first of all, I'm happy to be back for uh, season three. Yeah. Um, and what a group of films we chose to ring in the new season. Um, this was... I've seen a lot of these before, but not in such uh, close proximity to one another. Um... I'm never doing this again. This was, I mean, you and I watch a lot of movies and I feel like I can somewhat separate myself from what I watch. That was not the experience I had with this. This shit hung around with me and still is, I think. Yeah. If I see another French woman get tortured or brutally maimed, like it'll be too soon, let's say, because for those who I guess didn't listen to the intro, we are doing 2008's Martyrs and the films of the New French Extremity. And what started as, you know, one of our simple spy numbers, one movie, quickly blossomed into a 20-plus movie list that I made on my phone and then we stupidly kept trying to complete. And that's how we more or less uh, came up with all these bonus episodes in between because, frankly... We just needed breaks because we would watch a bunch of these and been, then be like, look, I don't want to commit suicide, so can we do an episode on the Batman? It helped, and um, I watched over the weekend, I told you, I watched Real Genius and Dirty Dancing as palate cleansers from these movies. And it, it works, because I love a good 80s, fun, you know, romantic, or just like a little like teen movie really cleared out the system, because... This shit is just the worst of humanity, the, the dregs of society, us at, as, us at our worst. Um, 
yeah. each film one after the other, but also in different ways. Like they're different enough that it's an interesting, it was an interesting grouping of films, but he said there are certain elements where it's like, I don't want to see some of these things for a long time. And like, I have a pretty strong stomach for horror and I've seen a lot of, again, I've seen a lot of these, but watching them so, you know, close together, it really just, it adds up. It's like listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen just like over and over again. You're like, I feel really depressed right now, you know? And it just, Oh, I'm just, that's what I'm surrounding myself with. Yeah. The problem with these two is that they really do adhere to a label that they didn't even give themselves yeah. because I mean, they are the fr- the films of the new French extremity, but like one of the great things about these movies is that that name was given to them by a critic, James Quant, who wrote a essay in 2004, I believe, Flesh and Blood, Sex and Violence in Recent French Cinema, and really was a derogatory term at first. He did not like these movies at all. And what they represented, because a lot of them were, like in the case of something like Bruno Dumont's uh, 29 Palms, which I hadn't seen before we uh, considered tackling this grand experiment. You know, Dumont was a a noted art house uh, auteur who decided to make this very slow, languid film about a relationship falling apart that climaxes in deliverance-style anal rape and like full on like suicide and murder. And he was completely repulsed by this movie and then started basically stitching together the question that we have been asking each other the entire time while we've been going through these is like, what the fuck was going on in France in the mid 2000s that drove these people completely insane and made them confront uh, their national heritage, their identity, and their past? with such brutal exercises and violence. Yeah, it's something that, and you did um, more reading on this with the, the history of, of fascism in France than kind of like the cycles you said of revolutions. And it's this constant, it's this constant thing for hundreds of years. Yeah, um, there's and- a great book out there by Alexandra West called uh, The Films of the New French Extremity, uh, Visceral Horror and National Identity, which really became my main reference source while I was watching all of these. And she dives into kind of what you're talking about to where like revolution was a cyclical part of France. It's both its history and it's kind of cultural identity. The idea that even stretching back to like the Roman times that France, even as uh, at, at the beginning of the Republic was essentially established under another rule. Yeah. Like they were, you know, established by the Gauls, conquered by the Romans, then uh, claimed by, I believe, the Franks at some point. And then they were established under the English. Then they went to war numerous times with England. And then once they even became their own kind of sovereign republic, they existed under a monarchy. And then they kept going through... Time and time again, like these kind of far right fascist, uh, politically minded kind of powers would come in, try to seize control of the government or would seize control of the government, then be ousted by a bunch of revolutionaries. Then a new fascist power would come in, uh, most notably like uh, during the 40s in World War II, where the Nazis actually came in and occupied France and the, the Vichy 
portion of the government actually did become collaborators with the Nazis and they existed, you know, the French people under Nazi power and how that kind of dictated and uh, established how they lived for a solid part of their history. And then even stretching on into the present, how these uh, kind of fascist and uh, homophobic, racist, misogynistic uh, mindsets became ingratiated in their culture to the point where, you know, recently one of the big news stories we had in the last couple of weeks was Alain Delon uh, deciding he wanted to euthanize himself. And that, you know, you had one section basically of like cinephiles being like, oh, he's one of the great icons of French cinema and cinema itself. And then the other ones being like, sure, that is true. But he was also a wife beater, a pure racist, a horrible, like alt-right leaning, like fascist, like a horrible, horrible human being. So it's like, how do you wrestle with these ideas and that really became almost the guiding light for the new French extremity was the idea of like how do we wrestle or even reconcile the idea that like a lot of our iconography was established under fascists and like even with the renaissance and the beginnings of cinema like in France which became one of its defining art forms you know, with the new wave, Cahir de Cinema, even stretching back to the Lumiere brothers and, um, you know, the, the invention of the camera itself, Edison stealing it and like uh, George uh, Melies and then all of his films basically being lost to World War One, Like so many of these, it's kind of remarkable when you do start reading about it, like how much of their art was either birthed or lost to conflict. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember reading an article too about um, the cinema and art of like conquered peoples. Um, And it was about Japanese, like Japanese pornography and like German pornography and how like they're two of the most extreme uh, and still today in this world that that came from, you know, being conquered after World War II and being basically destroyed and had to rebuild. Um, but it's interesting that France is coming from more of this occupied mentality. Um, and something that runs throughout these films is that there's a rotten core in the country there, right? And, it, I mean, you were talking about Alain Delon, but also I've been reading up on, like, the, you know, the current politics of France. And they have a, a female Trump who's on the rise who's, who, right. who might win. Yeah. Um, like, it's 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 scarily close to the way that, that she's trending. Um, and it very, feels very similar to Trump where it's like, Oh, this kind of person's too extreme to never win. All of a sudden, they just they tiptoe toward toward leadership and towards power, and so it's it's obviously still um, a problem there today. And you know, I don't think people say this, but you know, as France goes, kind of sense other areas around there will go. And so it's still such a culturally important um, part of the world and a part of the of Western Europe. But there is a theme again, like intellectually, these films are really fascinating. Like if yeah. If I watch these over a year and we're like doing like I you know give nothing but props to West writing a whole book on this. Um, I think you either have to be a complete sociopath or be able to completely turn it off. And again, once you watch these films enough times, you can separate yourself. I think more like you can say, okay, I'm looking at this very clinically. I hope I hope they can. Um, I don't think I could. 
with this group of films. If I had to watch, you know, certain scenes of, um, I certainly struggled with it too. And we, I mean, I'm obviously on record as indulging in some of the most extreme forms of cinema out there. It's, it's funny. Cause I have, and I don't want to go off, off topic here, but it's something that I get a lot from friends. Cause I'm, I'm a horror fan through and through, like it's known at, at work and other friend groups who aren't horror people. Oh, Martin, you love horror. So you must love hardcore shit. I can take hardcore shit in small doses, but I don't seek it out. Like, I've never seen a Serbian film, and I never will. I don't have an interest in seeing it. And I remember having friends who were like, wanted me to watch Faces of Death with them. And I'm like, I don't want to watch that. You know, Even though I found out a lot of that is fake, but it was like, I just had no interest in that. But I'm not saying that that's what these, these films are, but I do believe there's a sense of, if people think that horror fans are all gore hounds, and this, these films kind of pushed me, I think, to my limit of what I can watch. I do think the notion of horror as a dare yeah. kind of does run through a lot yeah. of horror fans, myself included, because there becomes like a crate, di- like crate digging element to them to where it's like, how do I challenge myself to watch the most extreme thing that I can find? Because I am the person who did go out of their way, and this is how I did discover... Uh, the new French extremity was like through groups like Diabolic DVD, yeah. Exhumed Films, like going to 35 millimeter screenings of movies like Cannibal Holocaust or Farewell Uncle Tom, or going and seeing like Seeking Out uh, High Tension, which was probably the movie that really alerted me to these, um, and seeing it at the Philly Film Fest and then buying like a shady Korean bootleg import DVD from uh, Diabolic back when they were just like a, you know, fold out table at the exhumed shows and would sell these sorts of things or even seeking out like another great example is like the South Korean cinema boom that was kind of yeah. going on simultaneously with guys like uh, Park Chan-wook making old boy and sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and stuff. And like that was happening almost simultaneously with the new French extremity, you know, and these really were the modern versions of the things I was seeking out. Battle Royale is another one that comes to mind. Like they became kind of like urban legends to where you heard around the campfire, like faces of death, stuff like that, where it would have been like, oh shit, did you see this? Or did you see that? Or did you seek out this? Or did you have a big brother who lent you a tape of that? And that's what these were. Only you were buying them through like illicit sources, let's say. Um, but then New French Extremity actually crossed over into the mainstream when, you know, Lionsgate is buying high tension. The Weinsteins and Dimension were buying out, you know, the Mari and Bastillo movies with Inside and Livid. That's why Livid was kind of hard to see for so long. Frontiers was part of that whole After Dark push of the two screen theaters. And and After Dark, where they would do like the eight films to die for marathon. I believe that's, I saw that in a theater too. So there was the thing that you're describing that you might not have in your blood as a horror fan, but I certainly do. Like, I always wanted to push my own limits. And these even now, like you said, like I've seen the majority of these films we're about to talking about, we're about to talk about before we kind of dove into this episode, but like, I don't know if I ever need to watch them again because they're so superbly crafted in many, in, you know, many cases, but like, they're not fun to sit through. Like they hurt. 
They they really do, and there there's a couple of them that are quite shrill too. Where oh, so it's, much screaming. Like I feel bad for my neighbors because I was watch I watched like three in a row, and like I think I was in Frontier for the last twenty minutes, literally screaming the entire time, just screaming constant and splashes of blood, and just chain and the song sound of saws. My, my neighbors supposed to think I'm a complete psycho, just all because I was only watching these for like a week. High tension hits that pitch too. Yes, especially in the final twenty or so minutes where it's just. Them running through the wilderness with a giant circular saw and like hacking through a windshield and a dude's face and everything. It was just absolute insanity. Yes. So here's what I propose. Cool. Let's start chronologically with a movie that isn't included, but to me was the first thing I could think as a precursor to this movement, which was Man Bites Dog, which is 1993. Two, I think. Yeah. Is it 92? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And was from Brussels. It's actually not from France. And for those who haven't seen it, it is included in the Criterion Collection and is a comedy, sort of, where it's like a fake documentary crew is more or less following around a sociopathic serial killer. Yeah, it kind of feels like if Spinal Tap had sex with Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah, is like or American Psycho. Yeah, definitely more American Psycho. And I, I feel elements, uh, we were talking before we recorded of more modern films, or I guess it was only 14 years later, but um, The Rise of Leslie Vernon Behind the Mask is another, you know, kind of take on that of following the murderer around. Um, didn't didn't love this film, um, but I think it also might, I might be being unfair to it, the fact that other films like it have come since, and it might have had more teeth, no pun intended, in like in 92, um, you know, seeing this at like an international film fest and, and I do understand it was quite controversial and it was NC 17 when it was brought to the States. Yeah. I remember seeing this video at it cause a few Vita stores in my town would not carry NC 17. Some would the ones that have porn as well. I remember seeing that on the shelf, that cover was so cool, black and white with him pointing down that illustrated image. And I was like, Oh man, like this is going to be hardcore. So when I was getting into Tarantino, so I was kind of conflating them all in my mind. Um, there are a few scenes though that are truly horrifying. I think there's a scene where they just walk in and um, begin raping this woman, and the camera crew actually joins in. Um, yeah, and that's it, the worst scene in the whole movie. And it's really, it's it's um, something that I think. While this is not a, a new French extremity film, that I I noted with all of these was. I'm not saying anything new here, but obviously the link between sex and violence, but the way that things quickly transition from comedy into horror or into, into gore or from sex into violence. A lot of these are, you know, scenes during sex that start out kind of attractive and turn horrific. This one was more started out kind of jokey that they break in and all of a sudden it's like there, it's this really horrific thing that that's surrounded by very comedic scenes. Again, there's kind of a running joke of, the sound guys keep dying like the drummers in Spinal Tap. Yeah, they you keep know it's it's that exactly. whole that whole kind of idea. Like, oh, and they keep the joke of the the director saying, "This is for you and your unborn child," and and it's just it's really funny. Oh, that's but then, right. He keeps dedicating it, it to all the different <laughs> cameramen who die, <laughs> which I thought was really good. It is funny. That's the thing is that I'm glad that you brought up the tonal shifts and Tarantino because this does feel certainly of a piece with that era yes. to where like it was guys who were really fucking around with how you could shift in the same scene sometimes between being really funny and then incredibly violent and off-putting and exploitative 
Because that rape scene that you're de- you're describing reminds me of Clockwork Orange a bunch too. Yes, that, very much. And that's one hundred percent. I think what they're playing off of in that. And then also, frankly, like it's it's almost like the European version of Tarantino. Like it's like those that that scene where he gets hammered and is just running through the alleys, going cinema, cinema. Like it's it's so fucking European. But that's also why I thought about it because it also made me think of, in a weird way, the old uh, Jean Rolin vampire films. Oh yeah, to where it was about like it felt like a filmmaker in the moment being like, okay, you know this thing, right? Like this thing is happening in America with Reservoir Dogs and these violent films. And it's like, here's my version of it. The same way that Jean Rolin was like, okay, you've seen vampire movies before, but what if they were nothing but like really hot naked chicks, scythes and synth music? And like these really abstract kind of pastoral images, like this is my version of the vampire. And to me, those are uh, kind of the building blocks of Euro horror right there through the seventies. And I really, really like those movies, but I also admit that like they're the definition of an acquired taste. Maybe. Yeah. I've watched a few, but then I was done. Yeah. Yeah. As you've perused my collection many, many times, you've looked at some of them and been like, Jacob, you're into some weird shit, man. It's funny because I think back to like just watching these films, um, I think my tastes have just changed. Because I mean, I remember when um, when Them first came out and when uh, Inside first came out, I did seek them out like you did. It's like, oh man, these are the hardest core thing. My friend Derek and I were just like, I was bartending and we were just like, let's find the hardest core shit whenever it comes out at the video store. And we watched the entire horror section and that was, but I just think like, I don't know if my stomach's changed or my taste has changed, but it's just, I'd rather watch, you know, final exam over and over again than some of, you know, some of these in terms of just, again, how effective they are to me. I think it's almost settling into that kind of mellower maturity too, to where you don't need to prove anything either to yourself or others anymore. Like, you know where your limits are with cinema or with really anything. And by the time we're almost, we're both almost 40. Yeah. You know, it's like, we know (laughs) what we're into, what we're not into. And like, we don't need to dare ourselves anymore. Like if something comes up that people are suddenly like, yo, this is the next most fucked up thing ever. We're like, we're probably going to look at it sideways and be like, but is it like I sat through cannibal Holocaust four times on 35 millimeter. I think I'm going to be fine. My, um, I want to mention my friend Derek again, because he was the one who we were about that age. I think I was 23. He was 24 and we were making our way through. And we also rented cannibal Holocaust around the exact same time. And I just remember during the, uh, the killing of the, um, the sea turtle, we are just both moaning and just like, no, don't, don't do that. It's like a joke we still make to this day of like, don't, don't, don't use that machete. And it's just like that film still. It's disgusting. To this like, day. There, there is a conversation to be had that a lot of these extreme uh, pieces of filmmaking are probably not the most morally sound works, uh, both in their production methods and the actual, let's say, virtues they're extolling. Because... I mean, even something like Martyrs, the, the, let's say, centerpiece movie of this episode, there's some questionable shit in there, both in terms of taste and morality. And also, I mean, something that has been coming up um, just 
in terms of filmmaking lately is finding ways to make have women be more comfortable during sex scenes. Right. When they're shooting, they have these these uh, people are there for that very reason to like kind of be the second director and like make sure everyone's comfortable. I guess they're called like, intimacy coaches. Yes. Or something like that, which I which I completely support. And I think some of these films made by these really scary looking French dudes, you look at some of their pictures on IMDb, I'm like, I wonder how comfortable everyone felt just even making these movies. Do you know what I mean? I guess. Maybe it's something an issue to raise, but there's just things of that. Some of it feels so ugly before and behind, in front of and behind the camera. Part of me is like, I don't want Gaspar Noé around me at any time during sex, <laughs> simulated or otherwise. So like, I see where you're coming from, but at the same time, he is directing Monica Bellucci and Vincent Cassell, two of the biggest stars in France at the time. When so they were married. It, when they were married. So there had to be a decent amount of trust yeah. on that set. Yeah. And I also think that they are all kind of entering in uh, to an agreement when making that of like, we are pushing not only our own buttons, but the audiences. So we have to commit to this bit. Yeah. So I think there has to be both a level of trust and comfort that Noe had to be pretty good at establishing because I mean, like that's not the first time that he's really pushing the, the uh, envelope because, and this is what uh, to kind of push on from man bites dog the other three movies that really link and, and kind of predate uh, the new French extremity or something like Carne and I stand alone, the one, two punch that Nui would make, you know, Carne is his first major short film that won best short film at the Cannes film fest. I believe at the same time as man bites Dog, like 91, 92, yeah. 91 or 92. And then I stand alone is actually the sequel to it to where Philippe Nahan, who's one of the, great hulking ugly icons of this quote-unquote movement he's in half these movies yeah he's in half of these fucking <laughs> movies and he plays the butcher one of the most reprehensible characters to show up in any of these for gaspar nui uh and you didn't get to i stand alone i right? did not know so this is we'll keep it brief since it's really only me talking about these but it's like it's the french taxi driver Okay. And it's it's coming from a place of like the idea of the forgotten man, you know, maybe mm. not God's loneliest man like Paul Schrader was was sketching Travis Bickle, something more sociological, let's say. Yeah, it's about this guy who exists on the fringes of society in uh, the lower classes where homophobia, racism and everything kind of runs rampant and then so society rejects him. The entire time. So he, you know, instead embraces his own morality and uh, envisions, you know, murdering, you know, engaging in an incestuous relationship with his mentally handicapped daughter. Like, yeah, really button pushing shit. But like, Noe, being the ultimate provocateur, is presenting it that way. Like, this is very much an exploitation movie. It even has like a William Castle style warning before like the final shocking 15 minutes where it says, if you're, I can't remember what the exact text is, but it's basically like this huge, like burr, burr, like fire escape, like warning being like, if this is your last chance to leave before shit gets real fucked up here. And trust me, it does. And then, <laughs> uh, Philippe Nahon shows up as the same character again in irreversible and kind of delivers the line uh, that becomes the uh, thesis 
of Irreversible, which is time destroys all things. And he's talking about his relationship with his daughter as, as it's gone on in that movie. But you could apply that idea to the way both Noe makes the movie and the central relationship between Vincent Cassell and Monica Bellucci. So this is my first time seeing this film, and I had I had um, avoided it for a long time. Um, partly because I just Monica Bellucci, I think, is the most beautiful creatures ever to walk the earth, and I knew I knew about this scene in this right. movie, and I said, I don't honestly, was like, I don't want to see that. You know, I, just, I really had just stayed away, and I'd, I'd had a lot of people tell me like it's a great film, but it's hard to watch, and so I said, okay, this is time to do it. We're doing this episode, and I'll tell you, it is one of the greatest films I've seen in a long time in terms of filmmaking, it is staggering. I mean, it is earth shatteringly perfect um, for what he goes out to do and does. That being said, it's effective too. And I don't ever want to see it again, but I think that thematically um, I'm reading another book right now called the devil house by John Darnielle. And he's, he's talking about true crime and this idea that when you're a true crime writer, um, there's a sense of inevitability. Wait, from the mountain goats? Yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a novelist too. I knew that. I didn't know yeah. he had a new book. It's, out. It just came out. It's phenomenal. It's basically his treatise on like um on true crime writers, but he's he's the lead character or his version of himself. Sure. But um, it's a very similar Universal Harvester, his other novel, um, okay. which is fantastic. But it was, he was talking about the inevitability of of like death, and when you're working with a person in a true crime setting of it's already happened that every step in their life leads to their inevitable end, or if they're the murderer toward their inevitable crime. And I was thinking about that. I was thinking about irreversible and how, you know, using the same, um, narrative, uh, form of, of something like memento, but to a much different, uh, effect, right? One is based on uh, memory with memento. And this is, you know, much more based on, taking the audience to wait, how do we get here and always keeping us off guard. And the fact is it starts with the most physically, one of the most physically horrific parts, which is the murdering of who they think is the guy who is assaulted Monica Bellucci with what this, a head smashed with, with a, with a really amazingly shot. I mean, just like from a technical perspective. And then your midpoint is the, again, the this, this um, tunnel scene with Monica Bellucci, which is, one of the most horrific things I've ever seen, honestly, put on cinema. People have told me about it, but like I don't think you can prepare. Um, moving back to the the climax of the film was realizing she was pregnant. Um, that 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 is the ultimate the ultimate um, twist that just adds a layer of even more horror throughout this entirely already sad story of the scene of her laughing and then holding her belly with all this hope in the world. Um, and with her not knowing, but this kind of sense of voyeurism is that we know where you're going. I wish I could tell you. Um, it's a terribly effective film. Um, but again, I don't think I ever want to see it again. Sure. Now that was long winded. I apologize. No, but. no, it's, it's <laughs> fine. In her book, uh, Alex West points out that in the park scene towards the end, when yeah. Alex is sitting in the park, watching the guy play with his kid and everything. And it becomes very disorienting. Um, she's reading a book called An Experiment in Time. And what that book is, it's a, a book of philosophy uh, that posits the idea that human beings 
experience time in two ways. One, they cannot see beyond the present moment or the present actions that they're currently engaging Mm -hmm. in. Well, secondly, there's always a, a second run of time that's happening called subconscious time. That it's all the experiences kind of running by at once that are going to occur that they have no knowledge of because mm-hmm. they're not able to see beyond you know whatever they're currently engaging in. And that almost becomes the weird kind of uh, signal from Noe as to what he's getting at in that he's coding the entire movie as a tragedy because we as the audience are experienced subconscious time because we know what's happening ahead of her while she is simply engaged in the moment and living life as it's supposed to be lived one moment at a time. What's well, all that's really fascinating. And also she says, and um, you know, earlier in the, the narrative, but like at the end of the film when she's, she's talking with him to Cassell and it's this very intimate scene. They're both naked in bed. And she said, I had a premonition. I had a dream that I was in a tunnel and right. she's, she's seeing her future. Like she's, she's, she's seeing that we're, we're kind of wanting to reach out and say, listen to that. Like, don't go in a tunnel, like stay away. It, and that's supposed to be a moment of subconscious time, like breaking through right. and speaking to her. And what's, what's, what's sad and interesting about it is, watching this film feels very much a film also about cinema and about how we tell stories, right? That there's, it's so formally interesting and from a structural standpoint, it also has a perfect three act classic structure, but just backwards. I mean, citing incident is like the climax and it just kind of switches and it's really fascinatingly done again. I, I think it was just a really fascinating piece of work as a film. Um, I know it doesn't fit squarely within the films we're talking about it's part of that but not in the same i don't it was not it was not contained in that the original list in the article i know while it was part of that correct right yeah no, because the the original list was jumping off of stuff like 29 palms and everything and like an art house movement irreversible was one of the original movies that he does discuss okay as well um but like to your point a lot of the, the films that either predate or start to, let's say, predict the new French extremity aren't horror movies. Yeah. Like, I Stand Alone is an exploitation movie, but it's not really a horror movie. It's more shocking than anything else. And then another movie I, I do want to bring up is Lehane, uh, the Matthew Kasovitz oh, wow. film, which is more or less like a French do-the-right-thing that also has Vincent Cassel as well. But that's dealing with the politics of France at the time and how, you know, the lower classes were existing in the slums and uh, dealing with racism and homophobia and everything on a a daily basis and how these, you know, this trio of friends, you know, tries to climb out and, and just gets hooked on like a crime for like one day. And that movie is fucking incredible, but has the same kind of supercharged notion of like, really confronting these ingrained philosophies or these ingrained feelings that were kind of dating back in French culture all the way to like being occupied by the Nazis, you know? Yeah. Because she discusses in the book how like it was only because the Nazis like took over France and once they started to collaborate with them, that all of a sudden, like, anti-Semitism was just everywhere. And it wasn't just everywhere with, like, the Nazis who were occupying. It was, like, the French then indulged in it. And they were like, we're fine because the Jews aren't people. They're subhuman. 
you know? And like, also like the blacks, the gays, everybody who's not just a white straight uh, male, more or less, because there were even, uh, you know, ideas that ran through French cinema about like women should stay in the kitchen. They shouldn't be allowed to work. They should have babies. And it was, it was, you know, extolling very regressive and, and anarchic and horrible values that in a weird way never left the culture. Well, it's, it's interesting. Up Lahane. I haven't seen that in so long, but I, I, I love Kosovitz as a filmmaker and yeah, it's interesting. I never thought about his, his one of his follow-ups to that Crimson Rivers. Right. Also a very violent French film with Vincent Cassell and, and Jean Renault. Which is great. The serial killer movie. It's fucking awesome. Um, I don't think, you know, but it, but it does what's well, not part of this movement. I wouldn't say is a very, very violent movie. And also got to cross over to America. Like, yeah. got an American release and everything. I had a poster on my wall in college. I was obsessed with that movie. Yeah, it's super good. Um, the other one, too, which in a weird way ties in, but in, in almost an abstract sense, is Claude uh, Landsman Shoah. Because mm. that was one of the first French movies to really uh, confront the Holocaust. And the idea that the French were complicit in the Holocaust and even denied that it occurred for a long time. And here he is making this eight hour sprawling documentary that actually visits the sites of the concentration camps and interviews real survivors, and then goes out of its way to hunt Nazis who are currently living in society. And it's like, this isn't a horror movie, but it's horrific and sad and really sets the tone for like how the French needed to use cinema to confront the crimes of their past. And then you jump forward to something in the 2000s like Basse Moi, which is one of the great yeah. kind of controversial, confrontational movies that came out right before the new French extremity took off. And Basse Moi is almost like hardcore triple X Thelma and Louise about it. it Features two porn stars who pay who play two sex workers who are basically get fed up with being beaten and raped every day. Go out, kill their oppressors, and then go on a road trip where all they do is lure guys in, fuck them with lots of very gross, unsimulated sex, and then murder them just as horrifically. But this was an adaptation of like a novel that came out of the punk rock scene in the '90s that then became this this very strange outsider almost repo man style film that even is is like shot on this very grainy consumer grade digital video features like a punk rock soundtrack is 77 minutes wrong like long and it's just in your face gross weird and super violent and would kind of pave the way for guys like Gaspar Noé to make stuff like irreversible it's weird too. I was when I was reading more about the, you know, of the new French extremity that another filmmaker kind of dances around the the outskirts is Olivier Assayas, right? As With well, Demon Lover, Demon Lover specifically, um, yeah. which I like quite a bit. It's amazing, but it's not you know nowhere near for me. Violence really just makes these films what stand out, and I don't remember that. For, I saw it like a year ago, but I don't remember it being that. Demon Violent. Lover is more about more exploring, yeah, well, and the psychosis of kink, let's say, and the way that kink bleeds into con like consumerism, and it really features quite the performance from Connie Nielsen in that movie. Like, oh, yeah, she's amazing. Really, really good film. Uh, but yeah, again, a movie that exists 
almost on like the periphery of the new French extremity because Alex West does go into that movie in her book as well, but like isn't quite in the same league, let's say, or has the same concerns on its mind, maybe. And that's maybe one of the the difficulties. And like, I mean, her book is it's not that thick. Obviously, it's it's very academic, as you said, but there are certain films this that you, you kind of you know it when you see it. It's a new French extremity film. Like they're the ones where it's like, oh, this is part of this a hundred percent because the elements are strong and they are clear. And it's it's really hard to not see them as what they are. There again, there are films that kind of dance on the outside, but the ones we're going to talk about a lot today are these very like really in the movement films. Yeah, and let's bring one up that you hadn't seen until we did this experiment, which was Trouble Every Day from Claire Denis in two thousand one. One of to me the greatest French films ever made. This movie blew me the fuck away. It's like so good. I so. I was worried reading the synopsis is kind of going in um, and I had never seen a trailer. I'd never seen any images at all from this one. I'd heard of it and I'd heard things in college taught, you know, French film and hardcore French film. People would say, Oh, like trouble every day. And I'd seen like white material and I love high life. And I've seen, you know, some of the bigger Claire Denis films, Beau Travail, Beau Travail. I'm not a huge Vincent Gallo fan, especially as a performer. And so I usually also stay away from his films. So, but when this, I was worried it was going to be like an only lovers left alive, like vampire film. My brain had turned it into that somehow, which is very much not what it is at all. Um, It's, you know, for for our listeners, it's about uh, a honeymooning couple, honeymooning couple from America who go to Paris. Um, But the man played by Vincent Gallo has to, meet with a few people um, who were in deep scientific research. And it's really cool because the backstory within the film is very pulpy. It has this sense of these people went on this trip down to South America, I believe, or no, it's a Guiana. And they were doing some, some research on um, new forms of plants that were going to help with all kinds of like sexual virility, boost the libido, boost the libido. And things go bad. And this is all told in this very cool Claire Denis way of it's like by by suggestion. You know, you don't get the whole story. It's told through snippets of him talking to people. And you kind of piece it together. A lot of elliptical editing. Very much. Um, but there are a couple scenes in this. Two in particular that I think are just really, really fucked up. And the first one is... Um, so... Our uh, femme fatale queen of the new French extremity, Beatrice Dallet, who is amazing. Um, the goth nightmare queen of my life. We, I was sending Jake, I sent this to you, Jacob, the, uh, this interview with her from The Guardian from like 2014, I think, or 2017. And she's a provocateur in her own right. You know, that she tells stories that she was on drugs and ate a human ear out of a morgue. Um, she met a guy in prison while she was shooting in that prison and then... He got out and things got bad. They broke up. She dated a very controversial rapper in France. She's just known for pushing buttons. A favorite quote from the interview, she says, she's got a big cross on her arm. And the, the interviewer says, oh, are you Christian? She goes, oh, no, I, I love Jesus. You know, he's the guy who created, created bondage. She's always just like out there trying to, you know, and I guess in the interview, she cackled after she said that. She loves to kind of get a rise out of people. Um, in this film, she's kind of this mysterious figure. It starts with her. Um, 
luring men, very similar to a scene in Raw, which we'll discuss later, of luring men by the side of the road to, to feed on them. Um, and you find out her husband, who's basically keeping her um, protected and at bay and not killing people by locking her in their apartment in Paris. Um, there's a scene where these two two kids break in another, another running theme throughout these films of some type of home invasion or break in and going someplace you're not supposed to go. It's also another horror trope, you know, they come in and it's a really, really sexy scene. Like I, there's, um, these wood slats across her door to keep her inside. And this young guy goes in and she's looking through the slats and just kind of eyeing him very sexually. And, and, it's this really, he starts to breathe heavily. And then she's like basically willing him with her eyes to tear away the wood planks. Like a vampire would almost do, but it's a really, really, really hot scene. And they go in and start to have some really like very aggressive sex. Like it looks almost unsimulated and it slowly transitions from this sexy, really uh, hot scene into one of those horrific things where you don't know when his screams are screams of passion and when they turn into screams of horror. Probably when she starts eating his face. But but it's like, but it's but you know what I'm talking about? It slowly transitions where at first he's like, oh, I'm kind of into this. And it's this thing that runs throughout these films of these transitory scenes that go, I think, from, from pleasure to pain like very, very quickly. But you kind of don't know when one stops and one begins. Well, you that's know? a running through theme through a bunch of Claire Denis work. Yeah. Where like High she, Life has she that. revisits that in High Life and then Bastards, probably her only other contribution to the new French extremity, although it, it was made in 2014, kind of really outside of the boom of these movies when they, they started to come out. But that one uh, stars our boy from uh, Teton or Titan, depending on how American you want to be, uh, Vincent London, who he is a naval officer who's called in by a relative to go seek out what happened to a, a young girl who went missing and may have been involved in the sexual underworld um, and how she might have been doing it out of pleasure and rebellion but then it goes too far. I mean, High Life, like you point out, does a lot of the same thing with the fuck box and Juliette Binoche's character and then how all of a sudden uh, freedom and expression of sexuality suddenly turns into rape. Yeah. Uh, and, and she's not afraid to really confront where the line is between, uh, let's say, rough sex and rape. And Claire Denis, she a freak, man. Well, it's it's something that we'll we'll bring up when we get more to uh, Titan and, and to Raw as well. Is that most of these films are made by male filmmakers, save for Claire Denis um, and Julie right. Ducarneau, um, in that they feel often quite male <laughs> in their treatment of sex and violence towards women, and you can feel a difference. I rewatched Raw the other night, and I could really feel her hand in the way that while I was showing a lot of the same stuff had a very different point of view. Um, but it's something I kept thinking about with these films as well. Yeah. Cause with Dukar now, uh, Denis and David Cronenberg are really like the patron saints yes. there for her to where she's dealing with this fleshy body horror and how one confronts their own identity inside of their own skin. When it's funny, cause I feel like Cronenberg is, while he deals with women in his films, I think his treatment of the male body is the more transgressive often. What he does with it um, is 
the I, loss of identity for ma- for males or with M Butterfly kind of transitioning. Well, and I think that's the the main difference between, say, a David Cronenberg and what a lot of these guys were doing in the new French Extremity is that Cronenberg had the good sense to be like, I'm a guy. Yeah. I'm going to tell these movies from a guy's perspective. Mm-hmm. About that's guys. that's my experience, you yes. know? To where guys like Alexander Aja and Maurien Bustillo and stuff, like, they were these dudes who were really pushing the limits of, of horror and extremity, and they were putting women at the center of them. And to your point, like... It a lot of the times feels like guys playing with Barbie dolls and then dousing them in caro syrup. It's it's really it can get uncomfortable at times. Absolutely, and at, I mean out of the list though, I think Aja is handles it better than some of these filmmakers. Um, well, let's just get into it with high tension. The, yeah, arguably the most popular of the new French extremity films. Yeah, this one, this is one I saw in the theaters. Because Lionsgate released it, um, my brother. I remember seeing an article about it. I think it was in Entertainment Weekly of like the shit you got to see this summer. It came out like a month before Batman Begins, two thousand five, in the states. Um, and it was like a year or two after its actual festival run. Yeah, oh three is when it yeah. was working the way. So I didn't even know about it till like oh four. My brother and I went Greenwood, Indiana. Like no one's in the theaters. Like a three p.m. Friday show. Who the fuck's gonna see this movie? And it was still cut. In American theaters, like it wasn't until it actually reached Blu-ray that you could see it uncut in the United States. It's a lot more tame um, what you see, you know, in the theater. Um, well, that's still relative. Yes, this film though made me an Aja fan to the, to this day. Um, he's my favorite, one of my favorite living horror filmmakers. Period. Um, I think that Hills Have Eyes, his remake, is one of the greatest horror remakes of all time. I think Crawl's amazing. I love Piranha. I think Mirrors is solid. Um, I like all his shit. It's funny. He was birthed in this, this very extreme thing, but he's become quite more mainstream, but kept his violent roots. You watch crawl. and like, it's a brutal fucking movie. Well, and there's an argument to be made that some of these films were like with a lot of international directors, almost like glorified directors reels for them to come to Hollywood. Yeah. And Aja was the guy who really opened the door for that because Marion Bustillo, you know, they had their movies bought by the Weinsteins and then they were supposed to make uh, Hellraiser at one point. That's right. Like they had so many projects that were picked up and then basically tossed out and then ended up making uh, Leatherface, the heavily compromised prequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Which we already talked about in another episode. Exactly. And uh, to your point, kind of like with Crawl or any of Aja's movies, particularly the Hills Have Eyes remake, which I didn't have time to work into this list but I've seen so many times Me too. and had a great experience in college where I remember going with like a bunch of buddies in my fraternity who we would go see the, the horror movies together. And then we actually brought a couple of the sorority girls that we hung out with all the time. And one left the theater screaming in the middle of the RV assault, like full on in tears and everything. Cause she was like, Nope, no, like she couldn't take the whole rape sequence. I had a very similar experience in my movie going for uh, Hillside Lies. There's so much rape in these movies. There's a lot. So my good friend from college, Steph, is one of the sweetest, most genuine people on the planet. Um, And he's just a very religious person. He's always been a good friend of me. We were roommates. And we were going on spring break. We were going to drive through Indiana, pick some stuff up at my parents' house, and then go down to Florida from Ohio. So we get there, and it's Friday night. And I said, dude... 
I have to see this movie tonight. I've been looking forward to it. Like we start our spring break by go see is an opening night. Can we go see Hills Have Eyes? He, he's not a horror guy. And I'm like, dude, it'd be fine. I talk him into it. So it's like my brother, his girlfriend, me and Seth. That scene, the RV scene, head between his legs, shaking and saying, tell me when it's over. Tell me when it's over. Tell me when it's over. That movie is an assault on the senses to this day, but also just like a badass. Like the, the last act is so fucking like just triumphant, you know, and, and very pulpy too. Well, and it's also working in a lot of the themes that were kind of uh, pervading the new French extremity, which was about colonialism yes. and destructive, oppressive powers, governmental powers, because the Hills Have Eyes becomes almost entirely about how these forgotten people were destroyed by the United States in their nuclear tests. And I mean, one of these mutants is full on stabbed with an American flag at one point. Like the symbolism in this film, you can't get any more explicit. Well, and it's, you know, to, to high tension, um, you, you know, you brought up a point. I think we were texting about this that I didn't want to be lost. When we're talking is that a lot of these films also are, reactions or almost like loose remakes of American classics from the seventies, you know, of right. the, the again, Wes Craven and the, and the Toby Hoopers specifically, you were saying the high tension was very Texas chainsaw massacre. Um, and it's in its setup, um, and in its violence. Yeah. And it also like, he was working with some of the guys who even did gore for like Lucio Fulci in the seventies when the Hills have eyes remake. So like, he's really into the visceral gory, like, like it's clear that, uh, Aja and his, uh, producing and writing partner, uh, Gregor, Gregory Lavoisier, yeah, I believe he's awesome. Like that they were just into, I believe in like an early interview I read with them, like they talked all about how they just would seek out the video nasties. Like that's all they wanted to watch. Kind of like what we were talking about earlier with like, as a horror fan, you're just always constantly looking for the next, like most disgusting thing to like really push your own buttons. Yes. And that's what they sought out to make. Like they were like, they didn't want to make something very deep or weird or provocative or like that was exploring any kind of like political themes or anything. Like they were just like, we want to make a love letter to horror movies and the fact that, that it was made in 2003 to me is also significant because you're coming after the post scream wave in yeah. America. And like we had kind of given up on slashers as we talked about before in numerous episodes. Um, <laughs> and but we will like, a lot more. Yeah. And I, but I mean, that's what made high tension feel so fresh when it came out in the early two thousands, because it was like, Oh, these guys are just making a slasher movie. It's a no nonsense, no bullshit, no meta, like tongue in cheek, anything. Like, it's just here are two girls. One's a psycho. She's in love with the other one. The other one doesn't want her. So she loses her mind and kills everything in sight until they can basically be together. Now, the one thing I will say about this movie is that it does set the tone, at least in my mind, for how you watch these things, because this is also a deeply sad film. Like, they don't shy away from the melancholy that kind of bubbles beneath the surface of all this new French extremity output. Yeah, there's, um, they're all, that's the one thing. Some of these do feel a little bit more sadistic, like they're enjoying it. But, but I think there is, like, you're, like, a pervading kind of sense of 
of sadness of just like every everyone involved from the killer to the people being killed. It's like, man, what a sad state of affairs that here we are all together, you know, doing this. It's funny though. You also mentioned we were talking before that a lot of these films are exercises in craft, you know, and I think high tension is very much that. And like back to your point about it kind of being a director's reel for Hollywood, like, Hey man, look what I can do. You know, it is one of the, there's varying levels of philosophy in this group of films. And we'll get to one that's very, I mean, our, our main one martyrs is very philosophical. I think frontiers has it on its sleeve, but this film doesn't have much in my opinion, um, at compared to the other films in this, in this cycle. Um, it feels like a much more, you said it's a slasher that happens to take place in France. I feel like it might as well be in like backwards America. You know, like the idea, the, the simplicity, like we're going to study for the weekend. Things go weird. I'm in love with you. This could happen anywhere. Does that make sense? It does. I also thought that this was really interesting that this movie crossed over at the same time that emo music was really part of like the mainstream. You had bands like Taking Back Sunday and My Chemical Romance, Alkaline Trio, kind of becoming the crossover pop music at the time because I always referred to High Tension as a Joy Division song with chainsaws because <laughs> it feels... It has Muse in the... It, it has Muse. Muse before they were even big. And like... It just was tapping into the zeitgeist without really knowing about it. How like this weird, sad boy sort of longing and loneliness just became popularized in a weird way. And he just translated it to these less like lesbian lovers. But again, to take it back to a point we were talking about a couple minutes ago is that this very much feels like a movie about women made by a man. Yes. Like these are idealized versions of women or fictionalized ones that are borderline cartoons at time. And like, is that okay? I don't know. Did you see, um, tales from the lodge? It was that anthology horror film that played, I think it was at, um, I think it was at South by one year, the, the British film where the, the friends go to like mourn their friend. They tell ghost side stories. Is that the one with Martin Donovan? I think so. Or am I thinking of a different one? It might be, but I, I'm pretty sure I saw it, but I remember nothing about it. Well, I, it, my experience in it makes me think of what we're talking about right now is I saw it with my friend who is, who is gay. And the, the twist of the film is that the killer is actually a, um, woman who's a man who's had a sex change because he was, he was basically jilted by the main lead character and now has changed a woman to date him and then murder everybody. And my friend was horribly offended. He goes, dude, this is fucking 2018. This is at South by what the hell is going on. Right. I was going to say, can't see any issues there. Right. And it was funny. Cause like I, a lot of it went over my head to be honest. And he is, he's like, I'm going to tell you why I think this movie is fucking offensive as hell. And I was like, he was completely right. Once he explained it to me. And I wonder in a similar way, there's some stuff in this that's just like used for dramatic, fun horror effect that's quite offensive, um, especially for a maybe closeted lesbian who's like loses her mind after having after masturbating and decides to kill an entire family and a child with a shotgun. Like, yeah, and that's that's the hardest part here is that literally her sexual desire and orgasm unleash her psychosis. Yeah, and it's like, uh, I don't know, man, that might not be the most 
uh, acceptable way to perceive to basically either perceive or present these women but it's also to your friend's point like if this is 2018 like why are we making a movie like tales from the lodge with this kind of content like when you look back at stuff like brian de palma's dress to kill tough to take because it's the phil donahue version uh, of how yes. uh, transgender folks were, were perceived by the mainstream and like you watch it now and I get why a lot of people are like, oh, this is interesting on a craft level, but like, uh, I can't really get down with what it's actually talking about or 100%. representing. And like, you get that, like that type of stuff shouldn't be made 38 fucking years later. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. maybe read a book or Twitter. <laughs> I don't know. Like look at, read the room, I guess. But yeah, I mean, High tension isn't overly offensive. I think the thing that most people are offended by is the ending. It's so dumb. It, it, I, uh, for I me, don't care. Again, watching this time. So I've always thought this is the movie that they wanted to make an adaptation where it's like, you can't be on a motorcycle and locked in a basement. How do you do that? Trick photography. Like that, this whole film is that joke from adaptation. It's man versus is, machine versus horse. It's like it's like technology versus horse. <laughs> but it's like that exact joke of like Here's, it, you have to it's a completely mental story, right? It's taking a lot of place between her head. Has to be inside her head, right? Okay, here's my only defense of the movie of of the whole like it doesn't add up once you get to it. To be fair, it is all told from her point of view. Yeah. So like you have the unreliable like reliable narrator kind of baked into the narrative and also like that was Luke Besson's idea too. It makes a lot of sense. Is that he was like no 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 you got to you got to change this whole thing around because their original version of it kind of clued you into it into it way earlier and he was like no you change this to a twist because like the other way is not going to work at all because he was kind of like the godfather for both um alexander aja and xavier gens mm. who would make frontiers like he was he was kind of the guy like you know kind of shaping their careers and really acting as kind of like a guru for them yeah but after that I'm glad we kind of did high tension because that takes you on kind of the stereotypical horror journey about like, here's two people who go out to the country and then a home invasion occurs and like some horrible shit happens in the middle of nowhere. Well, Frontiers and Calvair, I know you didn't watch Calvair, so I'll talk about that solo, but do you want to do Frontiers first since we just mentioned Xavier Gens? Yeah, so it's funny. I was reading... Again, it's about this 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 cycle of films, and a lot of people agree that in terms of quality of filmmaker, that Gens is pretty near the bottom. People, a lot of people say, um, in terms of just being provocative and offensive without much intelligence. I'm not sure I would agree with that. This actually is one of my favorite of these films. Um, I saw this when it first came out during the, again during that uh, After Dark. Um, eight films to die for when it was on DVD. I remember that cover of her and the dress covered in blood. Um, I, like you were saying, the text is the subtext, you know, oh, there, yeah, there's 100%. just, you know, to, for the audience, like it's basically about there are riots um, in the suburbs, as they say, which is the projects um, of mostly um, 
Muslim French, French Muslims. Um, and the group is like Yasmin and her friends um, are all um, French Muslims who basically get into a scuffle with and steal some money. They get a scuffle with the police. Um, one of them gets shot, her brother. It's complete chaos. They're like, we're all going to meet um, at a hotel at the border on our way to Amsterdam. Well, they're kind of using the riot as a cover for their crime at first and then encounter the police. You're right. That's what it was. Um, but they're, again, a, a common theme in these films is, is civil unrest and fascism growing in a country. We see it in quite a few of these films. Because the entire protest that's happening in Frontiers is uh, combating the idea that a right-wing candidate just won a huge election and is or, coming in. Or the votes are, are coming in. It's yeah. not, it's not, but the, it's probably going to win. It's, it's right. turned that way. And, and so they're, they steal the money. They're also kind of, I think, ready to get out of France in general. Like they're just leaving it behind. Um, and they end up at this roadside motel um, near the border that is run by full on fucking Nazis um, and Nazis Nazis. And what, what I like, one of the things I like about this movie is probably one of the pulpiest of this group. I think that it's goofier. It's, it's hardcore, but it's so over the top again with like, they're straight up Nazis. This is not the real world. The characters and the family almost feel like the Hewitt family to me from Texas chainsaw. They have like, the you know they have this kind of fight between brothers. Um, they had the bigger fat guy who's kind of like a sweet leather face in a way. We have the girl who's been impregnated, who's uh, who's been kidnapped by them, but is still quite loyal to the family. The old patriarch, and then Samuel Lebihan, um is my favorite part of this movie. He's got this handlebar mustache, and he here he comes. I think it's a couple years, yeah, after playing this romantic martial arts lead in Brotherhood of the Wolf this very handsome blonde you know just a dashing Adonis to this really disgusting mean like he beats the shit out of a lot of people in this fucking movie then he gets murdered on a fucking table saw he goes and he gets his in a really awesome way but this was another one that was NC-17 yeah it was so extreme that they they couldn't release it otherwise it's it's really brutal and there's some there's some elements to um it's actually one of the less terms of what you see sexually explicit of these films. We have there's a consensual sex scene that's that's kind of pretty explicit. Um but the rest of it is more the promise of what's going to happen to our lead character. But there's some stuff that we'll see in other films too of of the way they dehumanize her. Um and they're you know they're saying they're trying to basically fix their bloodline because they're all inbred. And they're like, okay, we know that she's, her blood is um, impure. We're still going to put her into our bloodline to make, keep us all from having birth defects. So it's this kind of like fucked up thing. But for me, it feels so comic booky that it feels less offensive in a way. It almost is like an EC comic thing. That's how it, it came to me. No, this movie's full on offensive. <laughs> like I like it a lot, yeah. but like it it's, hit me the same it's way. ugly and mean and like well the whole scene where you have the grandpa Nazi come out and he's doing the 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 full on fearer like yeah. Heil Hitler like preaching to them. He cuts the one dude's Achilles tendons like while preaching with the, those huge like bolt cutters. Yeah. Like this movie like rubs your face in it in a way that's that's really tough to take at times while also being wildly entertaining. It's it's strange that Gens was able to just strike this balance. Now to 
The only place I'll push back at is that Gens was the only one kind of like Aja who really crossed over. He didn't have the same success. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, Hitman. because like he made the Hitman movie. Um, he's still working this day. He directed a bunch of Gangs of London. The the uh, And I love that shit. And that show's great. Um, he made Cell, that terrible Stephen King adaptation with John Cusack. Uh, he also made a movie that uh, our buddy James Shapiro uh, put out called The Divide when he worked at Anchor oh, yeah. Bay yeah, yeah. with Michael The Bean. post-apocalyptic one? Yeah, the post-apocalyptic one that takes place in the bunker. Um, so, like, he had a shot at a really good career and still has a good career. He just never reached the uh, pinnacle of success that Aja did. Like, I, I think Aja was legit the only real success on like a, a broader stage. Like you could argue too, like Gaspar Nui is, but like he's still operating very much in like a controversial art house sense. Yeah, absolutely. But the other movie I want to talk about is Calvair, which is also known as the ordeal, um, which was directed by Fabrice Duels, which is one of the other great kind of auteurs who emerged from this and made mostly movies about jilted love, jilted lovers, uh, lonely lovers who are still uh, mourning a loss years later. And Calvair has the same Texas Chainsaw vibes that High Tension and Frontiers has only in a, a janky Euro horror sense. Like it's a lot slower. It's a lot more pensive, but when shit does pop off, like I just realized as I'm talking about it, this is one of two movies where Laurent Lucas gets horribly man raped. Um, yeah. Like Calvera climaxes with a bunch of rednecks, like taking turns on his butthole from and, raw, the dad from raw. Uh, no, no, the, uh, yeah, the dad from Raw, Laurent yeah. Lucas. Yeah, like, yeah, he's the, the the dad who you know passes down, let's say, his malady to his daughters. Uh, but yeah, he's in this and Twenty Nine Palms, which climaxes with him getting viciously man raped. Um, I don't know what was happening with Laurent. Talk Lucas about in getting pigeonholed. Yeah. Oh my god, <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> but Calvert's a very good, sad slow burning movie about a guy who is a performer at basically like old folks homes. Like he goes in and sings old mm. songs to them is he, there's a whole scene where like a woman comes in and basically confesses his, her love to him. And he's like, ah, I gotta go. Like this is, it's, it's really sad. And then he goes and stays at an old lodge kind of the same way that he does, you know, that uh, it occurs in, in frontiers and he sings a song to the innkeeper that unbeknownst to him unlocks the psychosis in the innkeeper because, you know, he, his wife left him long ago and um, some other things transpired. And he's such a, a horrible person that all of the town, the townsfolk, in this little like kind of shithole town where they all hang out in a bar, sort of like the slaughtered lamb from American mm -hmm. London with, and Philippe Nahon again shows up Our as boy. like the head of these weird French redneck townspeople. But we find out later, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Calvert that 
the entire town was basically just taking turns cucking this innkeeper and like fucking his wife over and over. And they hate him so much that his mentally deficient, uh, I believe son or cousin that stays with him in his, at the inn and is his only friend. He has a pet lamb and Laurent Lucas early on stumbles in to a barn where uh, Philippe Nahon and his cronies are taking turns sodomizing the lamb. Like they hate this guy so much that they rape his, his buddy's pet. Like this is a really fucked up, ugly movie, but in a different way that frontiers is, but it is getting at something that I think is, is sort of interesting and is a running theme through a few of these films is how there was almost like a xenophobic fear of outsiders mm. and, and other countries and the borders and what lie beyond like, let's say the more metropolitan areas of, of France, like Paris and everything to where once you get into the Hills a lot, the same way that like, you know, in American horror with guys like Wes Craven and, and Toby Hooper, who are like, you get into the middle of nowhere and who knows, Michael Berryman might show up and, you know, kill your whole family and rape your daughter. Or you deliverance. Know? I mean, or far- deliverance yeah. with James Dickey, like, France, and I think to to your point when you were talking about the uh, new political candidate who's almost like the rising Trump in France right now, is that a lot of these movies are speaking to things in the same way that that movies from the 70s, especially that came in kind of the wake of Watergate, Nixon, and Vietnam and everything, were speaking to the same sort of ingrained subconscious fears that were uh, pervading let's say the, the the psychic spirit of America at that time, when, you know, you talk to somebody like Wes Craven and he was like, I didn't even realize that I was parroting imagery from like Vietnam when, with like last house on the left and the Hills have eyes. It was just something that was like kind of bleeding into his brain from being transmitted from the television and everything. And that it just happened to make its way on screen. But like uh, these movies are dealing with those a lot the same way because like, these filmmakers all say like, we weren't talking to one another. Like we weren't, this wasn't a group effort. We weren't getting together and being like, you know, what's real fucked up in France right now. What if we made a bunch of horror movies about them? It just kind of happened all at once, which makes it, uh, it, you had texted me this while we were watching all of these that you were like, I think that makes it more interesting that none of it was actually acknowledged at the time. It was just kind of coming out of them organically. Yeah. It makes it more potent and also like more, uh, authentic that it wasn't like a sense of we're trying to say something. Um, when we get to martyrs, um, the director, he was one of the ones who said, he's like, this is not a movement. Yeah. He said, we were not talking to each other. Um, he literally said, he goes, I saw hostile and I wanted to do that. Like he just said that he's like, this was my answer to hostile. And he said the, but he goes, those film, the American, the torture porn that came, a lot of people say it was after, obviously right after nine 11. And then what we were doing to, um, illegally doing to, uh, prisoners of war, um, in Guantanamo, Guantanamo, it's, it's, you know, reaction to that. He said that, you know, hostile and the torture porn films are about torture and his films are about pain, which is different, which I thought was an interesting kind of separation. Well, and not to jump the gun too quickly, but yeah, uh, Pascal Logier's Martyrs is, it does feel like a response directly to Hostel, to Saw, to all of those films. But he's making a movie about the idea of like 
transcendence. Yeah. And he's actually applying a meaning to the pain beyond sh- sh- like simple shock tactics yes. like Eli Roth was which and that's not putting down Eli Roth at all like I actually like like I think all of Eli Roth's movies well maybe not knock knock but like I think he was doing something too but I'm glad that you pointed out the idea that again kind of like Vietnam like I don't think Eli Roth and James Wan were getting together and being like you know what's really fucked up Guantanamo Bay what if we made movies about them like it just kind of came out because those are the images that were just pervasive at that time and really kind of pounding America's psyche. Yeah. And then, but Calvaire and Frontiers and uh, to another degree, uh, 29 Palms, which is about this road trip with two lovers to where, but it all takes place in America where they're actually exploring the American West and the American desert. I do like that you could almost group those movies together as these journeys into the heart of darkness and how all of these people are exploring borders beyond France and, and how that's scary to this collective because France, you know, they pride themselves on being French. You know, they, they like their wine, their cheese, their cinema, their, their culture, their, their way of existing. Like there's a whole reason that, you know, the, the stereotype of the ugly American exists and stuff. And like, the, the stereotype that the French hate Americans and stuff is because, like, that's true. They very much want to be a self-contained little society unto themselves. So, like, these movies almost reflect how anything beyond their borders, you know, is rejected and repulsive to a certain degree. Well, it's, it's interesting to think how quickly um, national pride turns into nationalism. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's like that kind of that fine line of being proud of where you're from. And then, of course, then you have Frontiers, which, again, which is the most blatant of the films of like, no, there's just Nazis here. Frontiers almost feels like they saw Lahane and was like, OK, but what if that was just the backdrop for Texas Chainsaw? Well, it's like we were talking last week with uh, with Michael Bay is like using a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. To talk right. about an issue is like, here's my idea <laughs> just coming crashing in. Well, I mean, even the idea of revolution and riots uh, works its way into Gaspar Noé's movies because like he talks about with Irreversible how not only with the crazy camera movements and swirling and disorientation that he's trying to create visually is that sonically with the sound design, he was having his sound designer use and and insert a a baseline that I believe was channeled at 27 megahertz, which was the exact frequency that the police were using to pipe into riots to disorient them and try to disperse crowds. So he was trying to replicate <laughs> that, that sonic idea and that sonic queasiness whenever, you know, you, you uh, were supposed to feel that way in the theater. Well, it's effective. Yeah. And you wanted to make you run for the fucking exits. Shit. But let's get to Marianne Bustillo, uh, because I feel like outside of, uh, Alexandra Aja, Xavier Gens, Gaspar Nui, and to a lesser degree, and he's also Belgian, so I think he's sort of an asterisk, but uh, Fabrice Duels, um, these are the main auteurs who emerged from this uh, quote-unquote movement who, frankly, 
only made one good movie and a bunch of other sort of interesting stylistic exercises that don't really work. Yeah, I have a personal story. I met uh, Maury at um, South by 2014, my first year there. And um, it's Julian Maury and Alexandre Bustillo? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and he was the, he was actually, the, people asked the question, so it was uh, my first day, my first time in Austin, and they were interviewing all the feature filmmakers who had movies in the Midnighters. But it was, it was like stacked, like Mike Flanagan was up there because he was there for Oculus, like Bustillo and Maury were there for um, Among the Living. They didn't have a title yet, but it was a different title, I think, there still. Yeah. Um, and then a few other like pretty good, um, I think, oh, Adam Wingard was there for something he was working on. Um, and it was a cool conversation, but it, the, the question came up, it's like, what the fuck's up with you French guys? Like, it was this joke, and... And I went up after introduced myself. I just seen inside a few years before, and I just said, "Hey, I really, really like your film." And he's just this is wonderfully sweet French man who gave me a ticket to jump to the front of the line to see Among the Living that night. And it was this funny thing that people were already talking about it, you know, and just like, "What the fuck are you guys doing? Like, you're the nicest people up here. You're making the most fucked up shit." And um, inside is the most um, coherent, I think, of all the films and a point you made last week and I had never seen live, but that was the one I hadn't seen. I'd seen everything else, um, that they'd made. Actually, I didn't see the one for shutter. Um, the one in India. Oh, I haven't seen yeah. that one either. I, I didn't hear great things, but they always have really good ideas for like very pulpy, almost Stephen Kingy kind of setups that just, they don't know how to stick the landing often. And they don't know how to like, just plot it out like a, like a horror film. Like, Livid's all over the fucking place. Well, Livid is almost like Don't Breathe meets Suspiria. Yeah, very much so, you know. and it, But, like, the rules don't make sense. It's set up for itself. Their most recent film, Deep House, is a great idea about a haunted house at the bottom of a, a lake. And a hell of a technical exercise because they shoot the entire thing underwater. It's, I mean, like, you watch it and it's really impressive. The two, char- two main characters are kind of like, whatever. Um, and there's not enough horror. It takes a, like... It's a lot of swimming around. It reminds me a lot of, do you remember the movie Open Water? Oh, yeah. About the two people who mm-hmm. got left behind by the boat, and they they shoot it all with the digital cameras, yep. and they're, they're, they're attacked by like that swarm of sharks. $24,000 budget. The, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Deep House, much bigger budget, obviously, yeah. but reminds me of that movie in a weird kind of abstract sense is that it was almost like they're like, okay, here's the log line. There's a haunted house, but it's underwater. And then somebody was like, fuck yeah. Is a Blumhouse involved in that movie in some capacity? I, I think th- they might have distributed it here. I think they did because they, they got it onto Hulu. Because I know that Blumhouse is a yeah. deal with Hulu. So I think it was like that kind of thing. I think it was Blumhouse, but it was a, a, a smaller one. Maybe they just picked it up. I don't think they produced it. No, um, no, no. Because this was a French movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it feels like they just had this idea Somebody gave them the money and they executed it because it is sort of like a bit of Hellraiser, a bit of like Welcome to Hell House. And then it's just like, but what if James Cameron shot it? Yes. Okay. And it's cool. It has some good sequences, but it doesn't really like it ends and you're like, okay, well, that was neat, I guess. Yeah, there's there's not much there, but, you know, to to the film that we should probably talk the most about from them inside, I think is a really pretty good exercise of, of a thriller narrative of, 
you know, it starts with a woman getting in a car accident. Um, it starts actually in her in her belly with a CGI baby. The um, worst part of the movie, the yeah. CGI like inserts of the baby inside of her womb are janky. It looks bad, yeah. And it starts with this car accident, and the baby like it hits its head against, and there's like blood. It's like kind of it's it's bad CGI, but also kind of offensive. Um, and it cuts forward, her husband's dead, and now she's going to have to give birth alone on Christmas morning. If they're doing the whole, like, she's like Mary, you know, get ready to give birth. I, I think they're going pretty heavy, being, yeah. being pregnant on Christmas Eve. And while she's alone, our uh, the queen, Beatrice Dallet, comes over, comes in, in, <clears throat> in a very similar way to, like, the strangers, you know, starts knocking on the door and wanting to get in. Um, and is basically wants her baby. And as we learn, it's because she was the one in the car accident um, who lost her own baby and was basically her baby was killed because of this woman. And now she wants hers and she gets it. She gets it. And one day he got it. And it's what I forgot about this movie is I, I thought it was going to be more of just like a home invasion where she's keeping her outside like a siege. But it, like no, she, gets she gets in like quick right away. And the way they like stretch it out and like keep her in the bathroom, people kind of come and go in a natural way. There's a lot. There's more people to come to die. It's not just one person versus another really well paced to bring in like the cops show up and die in really horrible fucking ways. It's um, sort of like panic room panic and, and various. And again, strangers, I think totally took a lot of elements from this because there's a moment, one of the best moments of strangers is when Glenn Howerton from uh, Always Sunny, their friend, comes to check on them, and he's coming down the hallway, and behind him is is one of the killers with an axe in their hands. Yeah, and, you're like, and then you're like, oh, he's fucking dead, and all of a sudden he walks by a doorway, and his face gets blasted off by them, and by by our heroes, and it's this great kind of misdirect, and it's a very similar thing that she's waiting for. She's in the she's in the bathroom. Her mom comes over basically bangs on the door. She opens it and fucking stabs her mom in the throat and kills her. Oh, it's so gross. It's just like brutal. And it really throws you off. Um, and then Beatrice Dallet kills her like best friend, her boss stabs him in the fucking dick, like up mm -hmm. and just like works this like scissors around up in his crotch. Well, and that's the coolest thing too, is that her main weapon is this giant pair of scissors. Oh Yeah. And she even uses it to cut her fucking uterus open and take her baby out. Again, sorry, spoilers if you've never seen Inside. But I think I texted you something along the lines when we were watching this movie that this is the Halloween to High Tension's Texas Chainsaw. It's very, while it, fe again, it feels like a siege or like a, a home invasion at first, it does turn into like a suburban slasher. Um you know, the people come in for different reasons, but again, it's like, she's the final girl who, or does, she's definitely the final girl who doesn't make it hanging out in the bathroom while people kind of more and more people come into the house and are picked off by a really great slasher. Um, and Beatrice is like, as always terrifying, like she can turn on that, that creepiness with her, her, her teeth. Cause she could be beautiful one second. The next second, she's like, the way she screams, she's got these, she's got these chompers that'll just like take a bite out of you. It's also another movie that works in riots in a weird way where be, like the, in the suburbs. Yeah. Our main protagonist, and this is where uh, I'm 
getting the Halloween comparison from is that it's exploring the same idea that Carpenter kind of was as like, you know, the suburbs were like our safe space that like evil couldn't in- invade. Like suburban sprawl created this entirely new environment that was supposed to be impenetrable when it came to like pure evil. And then Michael Myers becomes the embodiment in that with the shape, you know? And with this movie, you know, the riots, they make very pointed references to the idea that like the, the civil unrest and the riots are basically spilling into the suburbs and like she moved out there, but still needs to be careful, you know? And like her dad makes a comment about it when she's sitting in the park at the one point, cause she was like a photographer who was documenting all of this. And I just found it really fascinating again that like all these people weren't talking, although I do call bullshit. <laughs> on that to one degree because a lot of these films are edited by the same guy this single monikered editor named Baxter yeah you know like all like, of them so like they obviously had to at least know e- each other or at least about what each other were working on because this Baxter guy's just showing up he's like yeah I just cut this movie for Alexander Aja now I'm working with Marian Bustillo and now I'm working with Xavier Gens and now you know like I'm just jumping from director to director and it's like they had to at least have talked once or twice or at least got an idea of like what's going on because like they share so many themes that it couldn't have been accidental Something cool you just said, though, was, you know, bringing up the riots again in this film. Another thing that does very similar to what they do in, in Texas Chainsaw, the original with the horoscope, is the sense that the world is off its axis. Right. Like, beyond the horror you're going to live through today and tonight, the world is wrong. There's something wrong. And so even if you survive this, it's all fucked. It's, it's that existential dread of it's all burning. And you're just, this is just one part of it. Well, and again, it's that experiment with time with Gaspar Nui, the idea that like you might be existing in this moment and it's good for you now, but in the end it's bad for all of us. It doesn't matter who you are. Yep. So you didn't like living, right? No. And you didn't like among the living. I don't, I don't hate it. Um, I think he's trying to do like a Stephen, really a Stephen Kingy. They're trying to do a Stephen Kingy kind of thing with yeah. the friends. Very They're stand, doing Stand By Me. They're doing Stand By Me with like a little bit of Texas Chainsaw. Texas Chainsaw and a little bit of it with like a clown kind of thing. Yeah. You know, in the carnival, very fun house kind of thing. I just, um, I think like there's some really gross parts. I mean, I'll never forget the, the foot in the mouth with this, oh. this pale, this pale creature. Um, and I, I think the only one that I just think is genuinely like a solid movie again, front to back is, is inside. Um, there's moments, I think live it. The one thing is they're really good. Like they're well-made movies. Like if anything, they're bad screenwriters. Like, yeah, they can shoot the hell out of a movie. They just need somebody else to write it for them. Absolutely. And I feel like, but the script is actually quite good for inside live it again. It's just like, all over the place and kind of tells this weird happy ending thing. It's like kind of, it's trying to do like a Del Toro thing. Like the monsters are, are, right. are good and they're kind of beautiful and like a fairy tale, but it does not land. Yeah. Cause me. livid does that entire thing about how they're almost like tragic monsters, the ballad, the vampire ball- ballerinas yeah. and stuff. And Beatrice Dallet shows up, I think in she doesn't show up in deep house, but she definitely shows up in, Livid and among the living and among the living, she's in the intro, and I feel like the movie's almost self-referential because she stabs herself in her pregnant belly in the intro to the movie, and you're like, 
All right, guys. I think she's just down to hang. I yeah. feel like I feel like she, there, I mean it's cool that like she became this figure in obviously she's a she's a figure in French cinema period yeah but the fact that like she kept getting used over and over again you sent me that picture of her and uh, Christopher Lambier <laughs> were they together at some point I don't I just love that I just love that picture what if the Highlander was just plowing Beatrice Delle I mean. And using that weird voice the whole time. Lots of different places. Lots. I'm going to do you in lots of different <laughs> places. My name is Nash. <laughs> <laughs> but since we're talking about kids and invasions and stuff, let's talk about them really quick. And I'm glad that you brought up The Strangers because this sort of feels like the French version of The Strangers. And even in Alexandra West, uh, her book, like she calls The Strangers a remake of this movie. Mm-hmm. Even though... It's not like Bertino's script is an original script, but they're but they're very similar in that like you know based on a true story, um, right? Now now Strangers though is like full on not based on any true story, but I was reading up on the story of them, and there wasn't it happened in Czechoslovakia, right? Of it's like an amalgam of a, a couple different stories they piece together. Yeah, and there's them as we you and I are talking like out of all these probably the most. Um, exercise and style. There's not a lot going on um, underneath it. However, there is some thematic stuff that still kind of bleeds through. And I was texting you, it reminded run, run me a lot of Eden Lake, uh, the British film. Yeah, which and, is great. Which is amazing and really, really disturbing. I mean, we yeah, just, real it, it's just, um, what's his name? Great Jack role And too. Jack O'Connell, who's now like in everything. And he, I was like, we were like, that kid's going place. I remember seeing that movie in the theater. I said, whoever that is, like he's going to be a star. And he, has done a lot of big shit, but very similar to the, the common theme of there's things are rotten. And the best way to show that a lot of times is that the kids are rotten. And I think that because the, the future is fucked, maybe you think a lot of like the white ribbon kind of, you know, saying these are the kids who became Nazis, right? Like there's an evil already here in the countryside of, of Germany in that film. And the, the weird thing about them though, is it takes place in Romania it's right. not in France. That has that kind of even extra level of the other of like, we shouldn't be here. She has this whole thing of like, she can't really connect with the kids she's teaching at the beginning. And then it's like this weird thing. And they're not like monster kids. They're just fucking kids. Like they hop on a bus at the end. It's very. It's supposed just, to be unnerving. It almost feels like a movie that was reverse engineered after they discovered an ending. They're like, what if, what if we end the movie with you find out basically that they're just normal kids and that's the big twist. How do we basically make a movie that leads up to that? You know? Yeah. There's, there's some stretches that are, I agree with that. There's some stretches that are very just like, Oh, at least it's only 77 minutes or whatever. Yeah. It just needs to, it needs to move. I don't think there's just enough. And again, it's this movie is now 15 years old and we've seen a lot more of these like slow burn horror films. Again, I might not be being fair. Cause I think when I first saw it, I was like, Oh, this is really cool. And it's again, it's not bad. It's really well made. And again, it does. It's 77 minutes. So it's over pretty quickly. And the, the leads are both really good and it's violent. Um, and I love the house. I love that kind of old estate they're living in, in like the middle of nowhere in Romania. Um, well, the one thing that Wes talks about in her book is that it could be a reaction in a weird way to the strict parenting of the French. Is mm. that the French were noted, 
noted for being almost like borderline abusive to their kids just in how strict they are how like if you step out of line there's instantly like a a very violent physical reaction and it feels like the kids rebelling against the idea like they're they're finally free and they can actually go experiment but they're using the violence that's kind of ingrained in them from uh, these horrible experiences with their own parents and they're unleashing it on the only adults that they mm. can find in the middle of nowhere, which I thought was an interesting attempt at mining subtext from a mostly surface level film. Well, there's the line the kid says, well, why won't you let me play? All we want to do is play, which is yeah. very much goes along with that idea. Well, and they even do the title card at the, or the, like basically like the end, like denouement, let's say where they were like, you know, when they were interviewed by the cops, they were like, why did you do it? And they said, well, they wouldn't let us play with them. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I guess, whatever. Absolutely. Do you want to finally get to martyrs? Yes. Like we've been building this the entire time. And this is like, in my eyes, the creme de la creme of this crop of movies. Martyrs is one of the greatest horror films. I'll put it out there ever made. It's yeah. Top, I mean, top 10 for me easily in terms of, a film that maybe I don't enjoy watching um, that no. that has layers that is effective, that has the philosophy um, that is scary. Um, that is also intellectually scary. Like what it is getting at. Um, I think there's a lot going on in this movie. And one of the things I like most is it very effortlessly um, switches like sub genres of horror um, that it, you know, it starts out very much like a saw opening and you're like, okay, there's this girl who basically survived a saw or hostile situation, very visually similar to these old broken down buildings. Again, like, like saw, sorry, like, like hostile, you know, like Eastern Europe kind of look, um, girl escapes. And then it's these really kind of these, uh, old films of her becoming friends, uh, at this girl's school, and then it cuts forward to this very domestic home invasion narrative where you realize it's this girl grown up and you're like, oh, she's fucking crazy. These people are normal. That There's no way. And then it switches to like a ghost thing where she's haunted by this creature who follows her around. And then off of that turns into this whole other secret agency underground horror narrative that feels in felt very similar to Barker and the way that Clyde Barker has layers to his horror is right. it starts out here and it keeps going deeper and literally goes deeper into like the basement of this house. Um, but I think it's just, it's a, one of the most offensive of the whole group. I mean, it's, it doesn't stop. It attempts to break every taboo that you can, like it kills children. It shows child abuse. It is full on like the last 30 fucking minutes of the movie are almost one long extended torture sequence. And then it uses that idea to probe the notion of the afterlife. And if anything actually exists, uh, for you beyond your, your current, your current, like, uh, corporeal form, let's say. It has one of the, one of the most disturbing moments I think is not even like on paper disturbing. Um, or not disturbing like on the outset, or you don't think it is comparatively speaking to the horrible things you see in the movie is she, when she finally gives over and transcends, she's, she's sitting in this chair and you, and 
she's being beat up and you see her kind of go blank. And these people are trying to basically make martyrs. They're trying to make martyrs. So they can tell them what happens in the afterlife. Cause there's a moment they say that once you transcend and give give over to your pain, you see God, you see like what's past the veil of, of death. And it's an interesting scene because she's being, she's being fed and she totally gives over and the music becomes this sweet triumphant thing, which I find really creepily disturbing because it kind of shows what's well, sad. It's too. it's sad, but it also just shows like this is like she's she's it's a triumphant moment for me. It's the most horrible thing. It's like you know I find it, but at the same time I find it really just scary. So I'm not really sure where the filmmaker's coming down at this moment. Um, of is this a is this a hopeful moment? Is this because she's actually getting getting to the place they want her to go? Because in the end she does. Well. My interpretation of it was all always one of triumph, not because she transcends, but because she was always acting out of a place of love um, because her entire character arc, like you said, it's about these two girls who meet in this uh, basically home for wayward girls. Um, they're both traumatically abused and, and trying to work through their own shit together. And even as a young child, the one who escaped from the torture room, she's already seeing these demons because that's part they, you know, the 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 matriarch or the mademoiselle, I yeah. believe, who's the leader of this secret society of people who are uh, attempting to break young women. Because that's the other thing is that they specifically say that they don't do men; they do women because they're more frail and thus more susceptible to the pain. They, well, they say that women are easier to transfigure. Exactly. So, Which is another yeah. morally iffy yes. stance from a man making a movie about women. But so even when they are young children, she very much is looking out for this girl who's clearly damaged by her experiences. And 15 years later, you know, this girl goes off on her kind of crusade of revenge because that's the thing is that like, that whole home invasion sequence where she brutally guns down this entire family, including uh, Xavier Dolan, uh, the French director. Oh, is that him? Yeah, who plays the son in it. Um, Whoa. Yeah, he's he's the kid. In wait, it. wait, who made Rubber? Yeah, no, 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 no. Oh, Dolan, that, sorry, no, I'm thinking Xavier of... Dolan, who made he made um, Mommy. Oh, right, right, right. sorry. He's, he's the French art house director. Uh, he just made something for Netflix. I can't remember what it's called, but like made a bunch of stuff. Um, kind of a, one of those infant terrible uh, filmmakers that emerged in the 2000s as well. But he plays the son in this. She breaks in, guns everybody down, but then it cuts to her in the car, basically waiting. And again, acting is almost like a big sister or mother to this this girl. And even after you know she kills the whole family, she goes in and tries to help her cover it up because she doesn't want her friend to go to jail. She doesn't want to lose her. And then in the middle of all this, she's again attacked by this, this horrible specter that her trauma has brought on, which again, I think is interesting because that he was making a movie of the moment that was responding to torture porn, but also makes a movie that a movie that kind of predicts in a whole other wave of films. That was all the, the thing that we make fun of now, especially with like the A 24 movies is that it's all about trauma and it's all about yeah. like the horrible pain that we go through as individuals. 
that's what this movie is about. Like but, it's a but it goes for it. But it but it actually uh, well it assigns a meaning to the trauma beyond just like the individual. It's the collective trauma in a weird way. But like so, this girl acts as this mother to them, and then she is beyond saving. She ends up killing herself, slitting her own throat, and dying in this rainstorm in this truly tragic scene. Um, that this girl realizes she can never rescue her friend from the abyss. So she's there and then the secret society shows up and she becomes the victim uh, that they want to turn into a martyr. And to me, the, the triumph comes because... So for her friend, when she begins to hallucinate from her pain, her pain creates... Uh, this horrible goblin naked woman that's always chasing. Well, it's a woman she couldn't save. It's the woman from the beginning. Well, we find that out later, but yeah. Um, And then, you know, the, our main character finds another woman in, in the basement in one of the most horrific things I've ever seen in an entire movie and tries to care for her too. She transfers this uh, motherly instinct to the, this other victim that she's found and tries to help her and then peels that fucking takes the staples out of her head. Just really hard to watch. Yeah. Um, but then that girl believes that she's covered in insects. Like that's the, the, the hallucination that her trauma has created. Well, the hallucination that, her trauma creates when she's finally being tortured by the secret society is her friend. And it's, she's always talking to this voice and she even says at one point, I miss you, you know, and it's her talking to this comforting voice. And instead of seeing something horrible or seeing, you know, insects that are, that are plaguing you or whatever, she finds comfort. And like, to me, that's the triumph of the scene is the idea that she's always acting out of a place of like pure devotion and love. And even when she's going through the worst experience in her entire life, her brain doesn't break in a way that's evil. It breaks in a way that says, no, you're going to be okay. Death might come for you, but you're at least going to create something that comforts you. And to me, like that's really moving and sad. Yeah, I just, I never, it's interesting, I never picked up on that element. I mean, for me, I was picking up on her being, you know, violently tortured, um, and then finally... Well, it's you- hard to, because he lays <clears throat> it on so fucking thick, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to watch, but it, I mean, it has one of the most interesting just endings um, that I think, in, out of a lot of horror films, has that kind of, that big question mark of what did she see behind the veil? Because she, she transcends and then Mademoiselle talks to her for two and a half hours to hear, to hear her out of what was back you know, behind there. And they invite all these other rich people to come and be witness. And Mademoiselle is going to share what she's learned. Well, they even timestamp it. They're like, she was martyred yep. at 12, 21 AM. And like when the, the, the nurse who's basically acting as her like bed nurse and feeding her that awful looking green gruel, like she freaks out and she calls them and is like, she's seeing it. She's seeing beyond, you know, she's seeing something else. She doesn't see anything else around her, Yep, you know? And it, it becomes that moment where they're celebrating because the Mademoiselle even says, at one point like most people are victims very few are martyrs yep and and she well and she even says like we're we're a country or we're a society of victims 
and like we, and we need martyrs, you know, right. which is another weird point at, at France um, and Western civilization in general. Here's the thing. I think it it is still vague by the end as to what she saw because of the way that she conveys the information because it ends with the mademoiselle killing herself after discussing she she takes off all of her makeup and she discusses with with one of the other members and he's being like what did she say what did she say because she whispers something to her and she looks at him she goes keeps doubting and then blows her own head off and to me, I think the biggest question always was, because he does that amazing Fincher-esque shot too, where he goes into her, the, the pupil of her eye and you see almost the entire cosmos like existing inside of her brain. It's such an amazing image. Um, and then pulls back out. And to me, I think Pascal Lagier is, is saying that she has seen the beyond like what, yeah. what lies for us but again i think that she transcends in a way that she destroys this cult that's put her through this like she's still cognizant enough to manipulate the information and make her think that nothing lies beyond like that's the great triumph not only does she retain her own humanity and her own love that 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 drove her through her entire life with the greatest relationship of her life she also takes that information that she learns in the moment of martyrdom and uses it as a weapon against these people who are put her through it and in essence destroys them yeah i mean that's an interpretation because i didn't pick it up that way and i've always thought of it as she truly does just transcend in every way she has no control over it at all um I think the big question though at the end is the, the I've read an article about you know both sides of this is you know one side is there's nothing out there right that she saw that cosmic and there's just like sure it's, it's nihilistic it's, it's there's like it's just like it's a hellscape or there's nothing and so the woman's like or it's so wonderful that she wants to die and go there right now was one of the interpretations I heard that it's like I've never. I think it does. I think she does see the afterlife, and it does exist. But I think she she is strong again because she's a martyr. She's strong enough that she can withstand this kind of like a Joan of Arc or whatever, hmm. and uses it as a, as a weaponized bit of information at the end to destroy this cult. Interesting. You want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right.
And we're back with questions about 2008's Martyrs. Martin, hit me with your top three new French extremity movies. All right. Easily, number one, Martyrs. Masterpiece. Um, Number two, I'm going to go with um, uh, Trouble Every Day, which my first time seeing it, just amazing. And I'm going to end number three. For this watch, I mean, Irreversible, for what we watched for the for this, I mean, that that's a perfect film. So I think all three of those are great films. Sure. Um, all are hard to watch, um, but three great films by three great filmmakers. And you got Claire Denis in there, you know, Lager. And then third, I have, and then Noé. So, yeah. <laughs> How about you? I'd go with High Tension... Martyrs, bastards. Wow, that's three. High tension would be four for me. I okay. think just like because like Aja, I think is great. I've uh, just revisited it so many times. It's worked its way into like scripts of mine yeah. to where like I've stolen from it straight up. Um, I just I've wa- like it just for me was the movie that was like, what's going on here? Like this this seems like a thing. You yeah. know, and then it, it really did lead to me exploring the works of all these other filmmakers. So I can't ignore that fact, you know. So question number two, we're going to actually change our usual question because we ask whether or not you would remake the film that's at the center of the episode. But the thing is, Martyrs has strangely already been remade with the that terrible Rachel Nichols starring. Remake. And Inside, too. Yeah, and Inside has been uh, remade as well. So, um, and technically, I guess, them sort of has with The Strangers. But, like, what movie out of these, to, to kind of transmute this question a little bit, what movie out of these would you pick to remake? I would remake Frontiers and the American South. And just go all the way with it. Um, yeah, I mean, because it is in the grand uh, tradition of almost like red and exploitation. I'll just, yeah, do, they're kind of doing it, but do it here. I'm not sure, because this film really deals with race too, because again, they're all, you know, French Muslims. And I, I don't know if I have the balls to deal with, with racial politics in America in a horror film. Um, but I think someone should remake it. I think it'd be interesting if, if, uh, an African-American filmmaker, for instance, made a horror movie of this in the American South. I just yeah, don't think I'm, cool. I'm not the person to tell the story. I would just say it's not my story to tell. It's not my story to tell a large Viking white man. <laughs> How about you? Irreversible. Really? No, I'm just fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, no. That's movie so singular. You could never remake it. Um, I would honestly pick probably one of Marianne Bastillo's, like one mm. of the ones with the great concept that is just kind of like, eh, didn't really get there. Yeah. Um, probably Livid, because I love the idea of yeah. like, let's break into this old gothic mansion that just happens to be 
run by like a, a matriarch of like like vampire ballerinas like that's really cool and i think some of the imagery from that that movie is oh, really yeah. awesome the and marionette like, kind of yeah, th- yeah there's cool shit in it it just doesn't come together for me and i like the plotting of it i like how it sets it up as like the nice girl and then we find out that she's really the mole like picking places for these these her juvenile like boyfriend and, and friends to like rob with and then it turns into a total don't breathe situation, which again, I guess you could almost say that this movie has been sort of remade because the, the structure is very similar. Yes. Um, but like the fantastical imagery and stuff, like I, th- I feel like you could take that idea and just be like, okay, well, how do we make this better? Yeah. You know? I love that idea of, uh, I keep seeing these like memes where it's like, why don't we remake like films that a great idea? Yeah, but or, or like a you know seventies exploitation film that didn't have the budget it needed, and let's do that now. You know that would be cool. Yeah, one hundred percent. Because it just to me that like we were talking about before, like that's almost the core of the Maury and Bastillo movies. Is that like you were almost there, but you didn't quite get there. Yes, yes. All right, so double feature with Martyrs. Go. Um, well, it's gonna make for a depressing night, but I'd do Antichrist. Oh my god. Yeah. What's wrong with you? I don't know. Just like, just buckle up and have a terrible evening. Um, but I, I, there's, there's elements of these films that I think like if Lars von Trier were French, he'd be in the new extremity. So. Oh, 100%. He's operating in the same mold. Yeah. Say. They're all, he's also provoc. He's probably even more of a provocateur than most of them. Oh, sure. Um, and it's really trying to fuck with you. But I think also dealing with just like politics of his home country, but the, the Uber violence and sex, turning into you know sex turning into violence um i think that he's much more his films are much rougher on women in a different kind of way um i don't think he tortures them as much but i think he makes them much more evil um often the villain so yeah totally and for you sir last temptation of christ i almost went to see that yesterday Oh, really? Um, they showed it at Alamo. Oh, no shit. Um, was for, it digital or 35? It was digital, so I said, fuck uh, it. And yeah. I was like, I've seen it. I've I don't se- think they run prints anymore, hardly at all. Like, they do for Terror Tuesday, Weird Wednesday. And even then, not all the time. They're doing a lot of those Agfa DCPs, which, whatever. Yeah. And so, like... That's a great choice, though. What? For you to pick this movie. As yeah, I mean, I mean it, uh, to me, it totally works. It's, it's the idea of, like, a human being deciding with what to do with their own burden portraying Jesus Christ as a man, one of the ultimate, if not the ultimate martyr. And like, if you paired them together, which one would we watch first? Last temptation. Of yeah. Christ. Right. It's longer. It's longer. God, what a night that would be like, I think I would just quit movies at least for like the next month because I'd be like, nah, I'm good. That's a, um, I've always loved, the, the neuroses, the neurotic nature of, of Jesus. And obviously, you know, based on the Kazantzakis book, but then Schrader wrote the screenplay. So you get, you know, a neurotic book made with a neurotic screenplay. Even more and, neurotic and, screenwriter. And then the neurotic director, you know, who's at, at odds with his own, you know, Catholic up, upbringing. And well, and like Pascal Lagier talks about in the book, like there are a few quotes where he's talking about bringing his own Catholic uh, upbringing to martyrs, which is like, Duh. Well, it's it's all over it, but I love yeah. that the idea too of 
the reluctant messiah, like, I don't want this, you know? Um, and the scene where he's like, well, Defoe's terrific. In it. He's there's like, one of my favorite lines in, in like the history of, of movies is when I think he's talking to Judas, talking to Harvey Keitel. And there's the other reason to watch this too, is that you have Harvey Keitel and, Oh, what's his name from the, the Abel Ferrara movies too? Right. Victor. Victor Argo. Yeah. They're like, Oh, Hey Jesus, what are you doing? Hey, why are we going into the temple? Well, yeah. Cause you got fucking like Keitel doing full New York. He's got this red Very wig. He's like, you're a Jew killing juice, you know? And he's real, like real New York. But there's a scene where he said, like they said, well, um, he thinks he's possessed. She thinks he's possessed cause he's having these visions and he's being physically hit by God. And he's like, like well if it's a demon a demon can be cast out and he's like what if it's god you can't cast out god it's like oh man i just love that idea of like i don't want this right you know and it's i think that's a good double double feature yeah i'd watch the shit out of it but again what a what a night mentally i wouldn't be prepared no so one of the ultimate questions we're finally back to asking with season three face melter Yay, nay, maybe for martyrs. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I would agree. This, if a face melter is meant to be a film you show someone and it just balls them over, this is way way up there. I've shown this to a couple friends just to like see where their limits are. They're like, hey, I want to watch something kind of crazy. I think you talked about this when you used to work at Vulcan. That was the one. It was a big one where where if somebody what else you got? Be like, I've seen everything. Be like. Have you seen this? This, I mean, maybe not a fun face melter, like, you know, hard targets, like with your buddies, like, oh, this is a great yeah. time. This is more like, what this, the fuck did you do to me? Yeah, this isn't a beer and nachos movie. No, I mean, it could be, but it's just, <laughs> they wouldn't taste very good. Yeah, if you eat the, the nachos during the skin flaying sequence, good luck to you, sir. Oh, man. Um, we did it, dude. We did. <sighs> The only thing I did want to talk about uh, before we go is in terms of the face melter is that I, I hadn't discussed how I watched this movie for the first time as I actually watched it kind of illicitly because, you know, a lot of these movies, one of the other key things beyond James Quant, who's a uh, Toronto programmer, um, is that a lot of them premiered at TIFF in the Midnight Madness uh, section uh, because of Co- when Colin Geddes was running that as a programmer. And I remember reading about these in the festival reports when they're coming out. And I think this might've been Fangoria. I can't remember, but they were talking about cause martyrs, uh, high tension played there and inside played there. And then martyrs was one of the, was one of the ones that played there. And they were talking about how like people were just freaking out at the screening, like walking out. It was too much. And he kind of knew what he was doing because he was talking to audience members afterwards and being like, I get it. If you can't take it, like that's not a bad thing. Like this movie's meant to really be extreme and fuck with you the entire time. Well, I would seek these movies out because I knew that it would be like years before they actually came right. to America on any kind of like official DVD or Blu-ray release. Pre-streaming. Yeah. Um, and like, I would find them on like message boards and torrent sites and stuff. So I downloaded the, this one with some pretty janky subtitles attached to it and waited for my ex-wife to go to bed. And we had a projector at the time, which I set up in our living room and projected this movie on the wall all by myself in this little townhome 
in King of Prussia outside of uh, Philadelphia and was up till like three in the morning watching it and did not sleep one wink that night because I was just like, what the fuck am I watching? Like this is, it's, it's one of the last movies I would say to actually have a true like impact on me, like mentally where I was just like, I can't sleep now. Like that doesn't happen to me anymore. It can, I compare it. We talk a lot about the first time we both saw video drums separately and had somewhat rewired our brains. Right. And then this was so shocking, but also again, I think like just the ideas it raises are really, are just like they make your brain spin. Well, like how you, sad it is too. It's just brutal. Yeah. But Martin, here it is, the beginning of season three. We're through the new French extremity episode. Thank God on to never ha- have to watch these movies again. On to happier I'll, green. I was gonna say on to happier things. That's that's where I'm looking. Do we want to say what we're doing next week? Let's let's um let's keep it a secret. It's way. gonna be a fun one. Yeah, and we'll see you next week for spy number twenty-nine of Secret Handshake. Stay tuned. So don't try and understand I get on the inside of you You can blow it all away Such a slightest breath And I know who I am
Trouble. 